0: Live show, end of October. Dracula will be there. Will you?
1: Dracula by Bram Stoker. Presented by the Oakville Players. Episode one, Leaving the West.
2: Jonathan Harker's journal, 3rd May. Budapest seems a wonderful place from the glimpse which I got of it from the train, and the little I could walk through the streets. The impression I had was that we were leaving the West and entering the East. We left in pretty good time, and came after nightfall to Clausenburg. Here I stopped for the night at the Hotel Royal. I had for dinner, or rather supper, a chicken done up some way with red pepper, which was very good, but a bit thirsty. "'Memorandum. Get recipe for Mina.' "'I asked the waiter, and he said it was called Paprika Hendel, "'and it was a national dish. "'I found my smattering of German very useful here. "'Indeed, I don't know how I should be able to get on without it. "'After dinner, I visited the local library "'and made search among the books and maps regarding Transylvania. "'It had struck me that some foreknowledge of the country "'could hardly fail to have some importance "'in dealing with a nobleman of that country.' The district is in the extreme east of the country, just on the borders of Transylvania, Moldavia, and Bukovina in the midst of the Carpathian Mountains, one of the wildest and least known portions of Europe. I shall enter here some of my notes, as they may refresh my memory when I talk over my travels with Mina. I did not sleep well, though my bed was comfortable enough, for I had all sorts of queer dreams... There was a dog howling all night under my window, which may have had something to do with it. Or it may have been the paprika. I have had to hurry breakfast, for the train started a little before eight, or rather it ought to have done so, for after rushing to the station at 7.30, I had to sit in the carriage for more than an hour. It seems to me that the further east you go, the more unpunctual the trains are. And all day long we seemed to dawdle through a country which was full of beauty of every kind. Sometimes we saw little towns or castles on the top of steep hills. Sometimes we ran by rivers and streams. It was on the dark side of twilight when we got to Bistrists, which is a very interesting old place, being practically on the frontier. Count Dracula had directed me to go to the Golden Kroner Hotel, which I found to my great delight to be thoroughly old-fashioned. For, of course, I wanted to see all I could of the ways of the country, I was evidently expected, for when I went in the door, an elderly man in white shirt sleeves
0: gave me a letter. My friend, welcome to the Carpathians. I am anxiously expecting you. Sleep well tonight. At the Borgo Pass, my carriage will await you and will bring you to me. I trust that you will enjoy your stay in my beautiful land. Your friend, Dracula. Journal, 4th May.
2: The Count must have directed my landlord to secure the best place on the coach for me. When I asked him if he knew Count Dracula and could tell me anything of his castle, both he and his wife crossed themselves, saying that they knew nothing at all. It was all very mysterious and not by any means comforting. Just before I was leaving, his wife came up to my room.
1: Must you go... Oh, young heir, must you go?
2: I must go at once. I'm engaged in important business.
1: Do you know what day it is?
2: I don't understand.
1: It is the eve of St. George's Day. Do you not know that tonight, when the clock strikes midnight, all the evils in the world will have full sway? Do you know where you are going and what you are going to?
2: She was in such evident distress that I tried to comfort her, but without effect. "'Twas all very ridiculous, and I did not feel comfortable. "'Taking a crucifix from her neck, she offered it to me. Oh, "'I didn't know what to do, for as an English churchman "'I had been taught to regard such things as idolatrous, "'and yet it seemed so ungracious to refuse an old lady "'in such a state of mind. "'She put the rosary round my neck.
1: "'For your mother's sake!'
2: "'I am writing up this part of the diary "'whilst I am waiting for the coat, which is of course late.' and the crucifix is still round my neck. Whether it is the old lady's fear, or the many ghostly traditions of this place, or the crucifix itself, I do not know. But I'm not feeling nearly as easy in my mind as usual. Here comes the coach. Journal, 5th May. The castle. I have arrived. There are many odd things to put down about my journey. When I got on the coach, I saw the driver talking with the landlady. Every now and then they looked at me. I could hear a lot of words often repeated, so I quietly got my polyglot dictionary from my bag and looked them up. I must say they were not cheering to me, for amongst them were Ordug, Satan, porkol, Hell, Stregoika, Witch, Vrolok and Volkoslak, both of which mean the same thing— something that is either werewolf or vampire. Memorandum, I must ask the Count about these superstitions. When we started, there was a crowd round the inn door. They all made the sign of the cross and pointed two fingers towards me. With some difficulty, I got a fellow passenger to tell me what they meant. He explained that it was a charm or guard against the evil eye. I shall never forget... That last glimpse I had of the inn-yard, and its crowd of picturesque figures all crossing themselves as they stood round the wide archway with its background of rich foliage of oleander and orange trees. I soon lost sight and recollection of ghostly fears in the beauty of the scene as we drove along. Before us lay a green sloping land full of forests and woods, with here and there steep hills crowned with clumps of trees. Right and left of us, the Carpathians themselves towered, with the sun falling full upon them and bringing out all the glorious colors of this beautiful range, deep blue and purple in the shadows of the peaks, green and brown where grass and rock mingled. As we wound on our endless way and the sun sank lower and lower behind us, the shadows of the evening began to creep round us. Then the mountains seemed to come nearer to us on each side and to frown down upon us. We were entering on the Borgo Pass. On each side, the passengers peered eagerly into the darkness. It was evident that something very exciting was expected. It was here that the coach stopped to await my transfer. The passengers and the driver, silent but for murmured prayers and quiet sobs of fear.
1: <gasps>
2: oh. The horses then began to neigh and snort and plunge wildly so that the driver had to hold them up. Then amongst a chorus of screams from the peasants and a universal crossing of themselves, a calèche with four horses drew up beside the coach. I could see from the flash of our lamps as the rays fell on them that the horses were coal-black and splendid animals. They were driven by a tall man, with a long brown beard and a great black hat which seemed to hide his face from us. I could only see the gleam of a pair of very bright eyes, which seemed red in the lamplight.
0: Give me the air's luggage.
2: With exceeding alacrity, my bags were handed out and put in the caleche. I descended from the side of the coach, the driver helping me with a hand which caught my arm in a grip of steel. The gleam of his eyes brightened a moment and the lamplight fell on a hard-looking mouth with very red lips and sharp-looking teeth, as white as ivory. He smiled for a moment before I entered the caleche Without a word, he shook his reins, the horses turned, and we swept into the darkness of the pass. As I looked back, I saw the steam from the horses of the coach by the light of the lamps, and projected against it the figures of my late companions crossing themselves. As they sank into the darkness, I felt a strange chill, and a lonely feeling came over me. We kept on ascending. Soon we were hemmed in with trees, I could hear the rising wind, for it moaned and whistled through the rocks. It grew colder and colder still, and fine powdery snow began to fall so that soon we and all around us were covered with a white blanket. Suddenly, the driver was in the act of pulling up the horses in the courtyard of a vast ruined castle, from whose tall black windows came no ray of light, and whose broken battlements showed a jagged line against the moonlit sky. When the kalesh stopped, the driver jumped down and held out his hand to assist me to alight. Again, I could not but notice his prodigious strength. His hand actually seemed like a steel vice that could have crushed mine if he had chosen. I stood close to a great door, old and studded with large iron nails, and set in a projecting doorway of massive stone. As I stood, the driver retrieved my bags, jumped again into his seat, and shook the reins and trap and all— Disappeared down one of the dark openings. What sort of place had I come to, and among what kind of people? What sort of grim adventure was it on which I had embarked? Was this a customary incident in the life of a solicitor sent out to explain the purchase of a London estate to a foreigner? It all seemed like a horrible nightmare to me, and I expected that I should suddenly awake and find myself at home with the dawn struggling in through the windows. Then there was the sound of rattling chains, and the clanking of massive bolts drawn back. A key was turned with a loud, grating noise of long disuse, and the great door swung back. Within stood a tall old man, clean-shaven save for a long white moustache, and clad in black from head to foot, without a single speck of colour about him anywhere. He held in his hand an antique silver lamp, throwing long, quivering shadows as it flickered in the draught of the open door.
0: Welcome to my house. Enter freely, and of your
2: own will. He made no motion of stepping to meet me, but stood still, like a statue, as though his gesture of welcome had fixed him into stone. The instant, however, that I had stepped over the threshold, he moved impulsively forward, and holding out his hand, grasped mine with a strength which made me wince, an effect which was not lessened by the fact that it seemed as cold as ice,
0: more like the hand of a dead than a living man. Welcome to my house. Come freely, go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring. Count Dracula. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome, Mr. Harker. To my house.
2: He had carried my luggage in before I
0: could forestall him. I had protested, but he insisted. Nay, sir, you are my guest. It is late, and my people are not available. There was a great winding stair, and another great passage on whose
2: stone floor our steps rang heavily. At the end of this, he threw open a heavy door. And I rejoiced to see within a well-lit room in which a table was spread for supper, and on whose mighty hearth a great fire of logs
0: flamed and flared. You will need to refresh yourself after your journey. When you are ready, you will find your supper prepared.
2: The lights and warmth and the Count's courteous welcome seemed to have dissipated all my doubts and fears. Having then reached my normal state, I discovered that I was half famished with hunger, So making a hasty toilet, I went into the other room. I found supper already laid out. My host stood on one side of the great fireplace.
0: I pray you, be seated and sup how you please. Excuse me that I do not join you, but I have dined already.
2: I handed to him the sealed letter which Mr. Hawkins had entrusted to me. He opened it and read it gravely. Then with a charming smile he handed it to me to
0: read. My dear Count Dracula, I must regret that an attack of gout, from which malady I am a constant sufferer, forbids absolutely any travelling on my part. I can send a sufficient substitute, one in whom I have every possible confidence. He is discreet and silent, and shall attend to your affairs during his stay, and take your instructions in all matters. Hawkins, Solicitor.
2: When I finished my supper, my host had drawn up a chair by the fire. I had now an opportunity of observing him and found him of a very marked physiognomy. His face was a strong, a very strong aquiline, with high bridge of the thin nose and peculiarly arched nostrils, with lofty domed forehead and hair growing scantily around the temples but profusely elsewhere. His eyebrows were very massive, almost meeting over the nose and with bushy hair that seemed to curl in its own profusion. The mouth so far as I could see it under the heavy moustache, was fixed and rather cruel-looking, with peculiarly sharp white teeth, these protruded over the lips, whose remarkable ruddiness showed astonishing vitality in a man of his years. The general effect was one of extraordinary pallor. His nails were long and fine and cut to a sharp point. As the Count leaned over me and his hands touched me, I could not repress a shudder. The Count, evidently noticing it, drew back, and with a grim sort of smile which showed more than he had yet done his protuberant teeth, sat himself down again on his own side of the fireplace.
0: But you must be tired. Your bedroom is all ready, and tomorrow you shall sleep as late as you will. I have to be away till the late morning, so sleep well. And dream well. With a courteous bow,
2: he left me. I am all in a sea of wonders. I doubt, I fear, I think strange things which I dare not confess to my own soul. journal kept in shorthand 7th May. It is again early morning. I slept till late in the day. When I addressed, I went into the room where we had supped and found a cold breakfast laid out. When I had done breakfast, I looked for a bell that I might let the servants know I had finished, but I could not find one. There are certainly odd deficiencies in the house, considering the extraordinary evidence of wealth around me. The table service is gold and so beautifully wrought that it must be of immense value. The curtains and upholstery of the chairs and sofas and the hangings of my bed are of the costliest and most beautiful fabrics. They look centuries old, though in excellent order. In none of the rooms is there a mirror. I had hung my own little shaving glass by the window and was just beginning to shave. Suddenly, I felt a hand on my shoulder. Good morning. I started, for it amazed me that I had not seen him, since the reflection of the glass covered the whole room behind me. In starting, I had cut myself slightly. I turned to the glass again to see how I had been mistaken. This time there could be no error, for the man was close to me, but there was no reflection of him in the mirror. The whole room behind me was displayed, but there was no sign of a man in it except myself. At that instant, I saw the cut had bled a little, and the blood was trickling over my chin. When the Count saw my face, his eyes blazed with a sort of demonic fury, and he suddenly made a grab at my throat. I drew away, and his hand touched the string of beads which held the crucifix. It made an instant change in him, for the fury passed so quickly that I could hardly believe it was ever there.
0: Take care. Take care how you cut yourself. It is more dangerous than you think in this country. He seized the shaving glass. And this is the wretched thing that has done the mischief. It is a foul bubble of man's vanity. Away with it! He opened the heavy window with one wrench of his terrible hand. He
2: flung out the glass which was shattered into a thousand pieces on the stones of the courtyard far below. He withdrew without another word. It is very annoying, for I do not see how I am to shave. There was absolutely nothing in the room, book, newspaper, or even writing materials, so I opened another door in the room and found a sort of library. In the library I found, to my great delight, A vast number of English books, whole shelves of them, and bound volumes of magazines and newspapers. Whilst I was looking at the books, the door opened and the count entered.
0: I am glad you found your way here. Ever since I had the idea of going to London, these books have given me many, many hours of pleasure. I long to go through the crowded streets of your mighty London To be in the midst of the whirl and rush of humanity, to share in its life, its change, its death, and all that makes it what it is.
2: I let myself into this room. I I apologize if this is your
0: personal library. No, no, you may go anywhere you wish in the castle, except where the doors are locked. Do not ask to go into the locked rooms. We are in Transylvania, and Transylvania is uh, not England. Our ways are not your ways, and there shall be many strange things that you will not understand. Come, tell me of London and of the house which you have procured
2: for me. I returned with the papers of the business purchase and went into the plans and deeds and figures of all sorts... He was interested in everything, and clearly had studied beforehand everything about the neighborhood. Your estate is called Carfax. It contains in all some twenty acres, quite surrounded by a solid stone wall. The house is very large, and of all periods, one part is of stone. It looks like part of an old chapel or church. There are but few houses close at hand, one being a very large house only recently formed into a private lunatic asylum. It is not visible from the grounds.
0: I am glad that it is old and big. I myself am of an old family, and to live in a new house would kill me. I rejoice also that there is a chapel of old times. We Transylvanian nobles love not to think that our bones may lie amongst the common dead. Somehow
2: his words and his look did not seem to accord or else it was the cast of his face made his smile look malignant. Supper was later served in the next room. The Count again excused himself as he had dined out on his being away from home. After supper, the Count stayed with me, chatting and asking questions on every conceivable subject, hour after hour. I could not help experiencing that chill which comes over one at the coming of the dawn. They say that people who are near death die generally at the change to the dawn or at the turn of the tide. All at once we heard the crow of a cock coming up with preternatural shrillness through the clear morning air. Count Dracula jumped to his
0: feet. Why, there is morning again. How remiss I am to let you stay up so long.
2: And with a courtly bow, he quickly left me. I could see the warm grey of quickening sky, so I pulled the curtains and have written of this day. (laughs) Journal, in shorthand, 8th May. I am glad that I went into detail from the first, for there is something so strange about this place, and all in it, that I cannot but feel uneasy. I wish I was safe out of it, or that I had never come. I fear I am the only living soul within this place. I breakfasted alone. It is strange that as yet I have not seen the Count eat or drink. After breakfast, I explored the castle, Doors, doors, doors everywhere, and all locked and bolted, even the one I first entered when I arrived. In no place save from the windows in the castle walls is there an available exit. The castle is a veritable prison, and I am a prisoner. When I found that I was a prisoner, a sort of wild feeling came over me. I rushed up and down the stairs, trying every door, and peering out of every window I could find. Of one thing only, I am certain that there is no use in making my ideas known to the Count. He knows well that I am imprisoned, as he has done it himself. Tonight, he may talk of himself if I turn the conversation that way. I must be very careful, however, not to awake his suspicion. I went cautiously to my own room and, and found him making the bed. This confirmed what I had all along thought, that there were no servants in the house, for he does himself all these menial officers. This gave me a fright, for if there is no one else in the castle, it must have been the Count himself who was the driver of the coach that brought me here. How was it that all the people at Bistrist and on the coach had some terrible fear for me? Bless that good, good woman who hung that crucifix round my neck, for it is a comfort and a strength to me whenever I touch it. Later, I have had a long talk with the Count. I asked him a few questions on Transylvania history, and he warmed up to the subject wonderfully. In his speaking of things and peoples, and especially of battles... He spoke as if he had been present at them all. He spoke of wars and warlords like they are part of his own memories. He spoke about commanding forces over the great river to Turkey land. He said that he was beaten back many times, even as he alone escaped the bloody field where his troops were slaughtered. I don't know of any battles between these two nations in over a century. It was by this time close on morning, and we went to bed.
3: Letter from Miss Mina Murray to Miss Lucy Westonra, 9th May. My dearest Lucy, forgive my long delay in writing, but I have been simply overwhelmed with work. The life of an assistant schoolmistress is sometimes trying. I am longing to be with you and by the sea where we can talk together freely and build our castles in the air. I have been practicing shorthand very assiduously. When we are married I shall be able to be useful to Jonathan if I can stenograph well enough and write it out for him on the typewriter. When I visit with you I shall keep a diary in the same way. I do not suppose there will be much of interest to other people, but it is not intended for them. It is really an exercise book. I shall try to do what I see lady journalists do, interviewing and writing descriptions and trying to remember conversations. I am told that, with a little practice, one can remember all that goes on or that one hears said during a day. I have just had a few hurried lines from Jonathan from Transylvania. He is well and will be returning in about a week. It must be so nice to see strange countries. I wonder if we, I mean Jonathan and I, shall ever see them together. Your loving friend, Mina. P.S. Tell me all the news when you write. I hear rumours, especially of a tall, handsome, curly-haired man...
1: Letter from Miss Lucy Westenra to Miss Mina Murray. 17 Chatham Street, Wednesday. My dearest Mina, I must say you tax me very unfairly with being a bad correspondent. I have nothing to tell you. There is really nothing to interest you. Town is very pleasant just now, and we go a good deal to picture galleries and for walks and rides in the park. As to the tall, curly-haired man, I suppose it was the one who was with me at the last pop. That was Mr. Arthur Homewood. He often comes to see us, and he and Mama get on very well together. They have so many things to talk about in common. We met some time ago a man that would just do for you if you were not already engaged to Jonathan. He's a doctor and really clever. Just fancy, he is only nine in twenty, this Dr. Seward. And he has an immense lunatic asylum, all under his own care. He often comes now. I think he is one of the most resolute men I ever saw. He has a curious habit of looking one straight in the face, as if trying to read one's thoughts. I flatter myself, he has got a tough nut to crack. I know that from my glass. Do you ever try to read your own face? I do. And I can tell you, it is not a bad study, and gives you more trouble than you can well fancy if you have never tried it. He says I afford him a curious psychological study, and I humbly think I do. I do not, as you know, take sufficient interest in dress to be able to describe the new fashions. Dress is a bore. Uh, that is slang again. Arthur says that every day. Oh, there, it is all out. Mina, we have told all our secrets to each other since we were children. Oh, Mina, couldn't you guess? I love him. Arthur Homewood. I'm blushing as I write, for although I think he loves me, he has not told me so in words. But, oh, Mina, I love him. I love him. I love him! There! That does me good. I wish I were with you, dear, sitting by the fire, as we used to sit, and I would try and tell you what I feel. Let me hear from you at once and tell me all that you think about it, Mina. I must stop... Good night. Bless me in your prayers and, Mina, pray for my happiness. Lucy, P.S. I need not tell you this is a secret. Good night again.
2: Journal, in shorthand. 12th May. Let me begin with facts, bare, meager facts. Last evening, the Count came by my room.
0: Have you written to our friend Mr. Peter Hawkins? You should write to our friend and to any other and say, if it will please you, that you shall stay with me until another month from now. Do you wish me to stay so long? My heart grew cold at the thought. I desire it much. Nay, I will take no refusal.
2: What could I do but bow acceptance? It was Mr. Hawkins' interest, not mine. And while Count Dracula was speaking, there was a look in his eyes that made me remember that I was a prisoner, and that I could have no choice.
0: I pray you, my good young friend, that you will not discourse of things other than business in your letters. It will doubtless please your friends to know that you are well, and that you look forward to getting home to them.
2: I noticed his quiet smile with the sharp canine teeth lying over the red underlip. I understood as well that I should be careful what I wrote, for he would be able to read it. So I determined to write only formal notes now, but to write later to Mina, for to her I could write in shorthand, which would puzzle the Count if he did see it.
0: He took up the letters on the table and stamped them carefully. I have much work to do in private this evening. Let me advise you, my dear young friend, Nay, Let me warn you with all seriousness that should you leave these rooms, you will not by any chance go to sleep in any other part of the castle. It is old and has many memories, and there are bad dreams for those who sleep unwisely.
2: Later. I endorse the last words written, but this time there is no doubt in question. I shall not fear to sleep in any place where he is not. I have placed the crucifix over the head of my bed. When he left me, I went to my room. After a little while, not hearing any sound, I came out and went up the stone stair to where I could look out the windows toward the south. I am beginning to feel this nocturnal existence tell on me. It is destroying my nerve. As I leaned from the window, my eye was caught by something moving, a story below me and somewhat to my left. The window at which I stood was tall and deep. I drew back, behind the stonework, and looked carefully out. What I saw was the Count's head coming out from the window... To my repulsion and terror, I saw the whole man slowly emerge from the window and begin to crawl down the castle wall over that dreadful abyss, face down, with his cloak spreading out around him like great wings. At first, I could not believe my eyes. I thought it was some trick of the moonlight, some weird effect of shadow, but I kept looking, and it could be no delusion. I saw the fingers and toes grasp the corners of the stones, worn clear of the mortar by the stress of years, and by thus using every projection and inequality, move downwards with considerable speed, just as a lizard moves along a wall. He moved downwards in a sidelong way, some hundred feet down, and vanished into some hole or window. I knew he had left the castle now. I tried the door in the hall where I had entered originally. I found I could... Pull back the bolts easily enough, and unhook the great chains. But the door's locked. The key must be in the Count's room. I went on to make a thorough examination of the various stairs and passages, and to try the doors that opened from them. I found one door at the top of the stairway, which, though it seemed to be locked, gave a little under pressure. I am now in the wing of the castle, further to the right than the rooms I knew, and a story lower down. The windows were curtainless, and the yellow moonlight flooding in through the diamond panes enabled one to see even colours, whilst it softened the wealth of dust which lay over all. I am feeling... sleepy. The Count's warning comes into my mind, but I feel... a pleasure in disobeying it. The soft moonlight soothes, and the wide expanse without gives a sense of freedom which refreshes me. I drew a great couch out and composed myself for sleep. Later, morning of 16th May, God preserve my sanity, for to this I am reduced. There is but one thing to hope for, that I may not go mad if indeed I be not mad already. I suppose I must have fallen asleep. I dreamed, or not. I was not alone. In the moonlight opposite me were three young women, ladies by their dress and manner. I thought at the time I must be dreaming when I saw them, for though the moonlight was behind them, they threw no shadow on the floor. All three had brilliant white teeth that shone like pearls against the ruby of their voluptuous lips. I felt in my heart a wicked, burning desire that they would kiss me with those red lips. They whispered together, and then they all three laughed. (laughs) Go on. You are first,
1: and we shall follow.
3: He is young and strong. There are kisses for us all.
2: I lay quiet, Looking out under my eyelashes, in an agony of delightful anticipation, one bent over me, till I could feel the movement of her breath upon me. Sweet it was in one sense, honey-sweet, but with a bitter underlying the sweet, a bitter offensiveness, as one smells in blood. The girl went on her knees, She arched her neck. She actually licked her lips like an animal, till I could see in the moonlight the moisture shining on the scarlet lips and on the red tongue as it lapped the white, sharp teeth. Lower and lower went her head as the lips went below the range of my mouth and chin and seemed about to fasten on my throat." I could feel the soft, shivering touch of the lips on the super-sensitive skin of my throat and the hard dents of two sharp teeth, just touching and pausing there. I closed my eyes in a languorous ecstasy and waited, waited with beating heart. But at that instant, another sensation swept through me as quick as lightning. I was conscious of the presence of the Count and of his being as if lapped in a storm of fury. I saw his strong hand grasp the slender neck of the kneeling woman, her blue eyes transformed with fury, the white teeth champing with rage. but the count! Never did I imagine such wrath and fury, even to the demons of the pit! His eyes were positively blazing, the red fire in them was lurid as if the flames of hellfire blazed behind them.
0: With a fierce sweep of his arm, he hurled the woman from him. How dare any of you touch him? Any of you when I had forbidden it. Back, I tell you all, this man belongs to me.
1: You yourself never loved. You never love.
0: Then the Count turned,
2: after looking at my face attentively.
0: I promise you that when I am done with him, you shall kiss him at your will. Now go. Go! I must awaken him, for there is work to be done.
3: Oh, are we to have nothing tonight?
0: He pointed
2: to the bag which he had thrown upon the floor when he entered, and which moved, as though there was some living thing within it. For answer, he nodded his head. One of the women jumped forward, grabbing the bag in both hands. If my ears did not deceive me, There was a gasp and a low wail. The women closed round whilst I was aghast with horror, but as I looked, they disappeared, and with them the dreadful bag. They simply seemed to fade into the rays of moonlight and pass out through the window. Then the horror overcame me, and I sank down unconscious. I awoke in my own bed. If it be that I had not dreamt, the Count must have carried me here. To be sure, there were certain small evidences, such as that my clothes were folded and laid by in a manner which was not my habit, but this is not proof. As I look around this room, although it has been to me so full of fear, it is now a sort of sanctuary, for nothing can be more dreadful than those awful women who were, who are, waiting to suck my blood. Journal kept in shorthand. 18th May. I have been down to look at that room again in daylight, for I must know the truth. When I got to the doorway at the top of the stairs, I found it closed. It had been so forcefully driven against the jam that part of the woodwork was splintered. I fear it was no dream. Tonight, the Count asked me to write three letters. One saying that my work here was nearly done, and that I should start for home within a few days. Another that I was starting on the next morning. And the third, that I had left the castle and arrived at Bistrist. It would be madness to quarrel openly with the Count whilst I am so absolutely in his power, and to refuse would be to excite his suspicion and to arouse his anger. He knows that I know too much and that I must not live lest I be dangerous to him. I saw in his eyes something of that gathering wrath which was manifest when he hurled that woman from him. I asked him
0: what dates I should put on the letters... The first should be June 12th, the second, June 19th, and the third, June 29th. God help me.
2: I now know the span of my life.
1: Dracula the Radio Play Miniseries
3: Episode 1 Cast
2: Anir Maliknur as Jonathan Harker.
0: Robert Harrower as Dracula.
3: Heather Smith as Mina and a Vampire Woman. Tina Aurora as Lucy, Innkeeper's Wife, a Vampire Woman. Duncan Karens as Hawkins.
1: Directed and edited by Robin Sadovoy, and produced by Alex Raguzino for the Oakville Players. For information about Creative Commons licensed music used in this episode, see the episode description. Sound effects from Pixabay and freesound.org.